Good morning, church. Last week's sermon, I mentioned that Jesus was in the process of preparing his disciples to be sent out to do the work of the kingdom. He instructed them in chapter 9 of the book of Matthew, verse 38, to pray to the Lord of the harvest for laborers to send into the harvest. But something we need to realize is that Jesus didn't start preparing his disciples right then. Jesus had been preparing his disciples for their work all along, through his whole ministry. In chapter 5, Jesus tells them what it looks like to belong to the kingdom of heaven as citizens. All throughout the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7, were about that. Then he gives them and brings them everywhere. He gives them an idea of what it looks like to be doing the work actively. So he brings them to several healings in chapters 8 and 9. He brings them to the land of the Gentiles across the Sea of Galilee. He brings them to Matthew's house, a brand new disciple who was a sinner and a tax collector. Then in chapter 9, verse 35, we're told that Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages of the area preaching, teaching, and healing. He brought them along on that trip. So they've heard how it's supposed to be done. They've seen it demonstrated. And now's their chance to practice being the representatives of Jesus. They get to proclaim the kingdom. They get to do that work in Matthew 10. So let's stand and read about their mission and about these guys from Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. This is the word of the Lord. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Please be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we desire to understand your word, to make it a part of our lives. And we ask now that you would help us to do that. We know that's a work of the Spirit, so I pray now that the Spirit would, would work in the hearts of those who are here, that we would be molded and shaped by your word. 
We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew starts off chapter 10 of his gospel with first an introduction. Verses 2 through 4 here give us a list of Jesus' 12 apostles. But before we get to that list, we have one of the most important verses in the Bible. If we're going to properly understand what these guys were called to do. Verse 1. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Okay, so after Jesus has gone around to every town and village in Galilee, and after he has told his disciples to pray for laborers for the harvest, Jesus calls all of them to himself. And he does something he hasn't done yet in the Gospel of Matthew. He gives them authority. This should be ringing major bells for you at this point. Matthew's been trying really hard to show us that Jesus has authority over all things. He has authority to correctly interpret and, and apply the law. He has authority to heal human sickness. He has authority over nature. He has authority over the demonic realm. He has the authority to forgive sins. And he even has authority over death itself. And now we're told that he gives these disciples authority. Specifically, he gives them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. That's part of the work that Jesus has been doing himself. Going around to every town and village doing exactly that. He heals and he casts out demons. And now the disciples will do that work. Jesus, the one who has all authority, delegates his authority to his disciples. And the New Testament plays out exactly what that means. Jesus chooses 12 men to be his representatives and leaders in the kingdom of heaven. 12, of course, it's a very significant number. There are 12 tribes of Israel. So in choosing 12 new men, Jesus was saying that these would constitute the new leadership of an alternative Israel, the people of God. The makeup and organizational structure of the people of God would no longer be geared around tribal heads, but around a call from a Messiah. Israel was organized around the idea of 12 tribes, named after 12 patriarchs. But now there's a new leadership, and Jesus has delegated his authority to these men. At the very end of the book, the last thing that we hear from Jesus, Matthew concludes with the statement of Jesus's authority and a mission for the disciples. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Then he tells his disciples to go make more disciples. And then he tells them he will always be with them. And one major application of that important text is clear. Jesus' authority has been delegated to his disciples. Forever. The foundation of the church would be them. Their teaching would be the teaching the church would grow under. And the history of the church bears that out. In Acts chapter 2, the church dedicates themselves to the apostles' teaching. The book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 14 says this, talking about the new Jerusalem. And the walls of the city had 12 foundations, it says. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles 
of the Lamb. The foundation of the city of God that will come down at the end of time has these guys' names on it. Sometimes we, we read the Gospels and view the 12 as maybe a, a laughable group of bumbling idiots until they miraculously somehow figure it out in the book of Acts. And of course, as Protestants, we are careful not to venerate these men too highly. They are men, after all. But nevertheless, we have to understand that Jesus appointed these men as spiritual leaders for the church for all time. They were not perfect. The Gospels show that. They needed to learn from Jesus. And this list right here that we're about to read isn't even the final list of apostles that we see in the New Testament. But our scriptures are written and authorized by Jesus' apostles. We still dedicate ourselves to the apostles' teaching. We still recognize their authority when we believe the Bible is the word of God. And it's right here in Matthew 10 that Jesus first delegates a portion of his authority to them. The word apostle means messenger or representative. This is the first time that word is used in verse 2. That's what these men would be, representatives of Jesus Christ. So let's meet them. Matthew runs through a list of apostles and doesn't give us hardly any information about them here. But from the rest of the scriptures and from church history and from church tradition, we can know a few things about them. First is Peter. Peter is always first. In every list that lists the apostles, Peter is number one. He's the only one that gets a number by his name from Matthew. He's the most well-known disciple. And we'll hear from him several times in this gospel. His original Hebrew name is Simon. But he was known throughout the church as Peter because Jesus gives him this powerful nickname, which means the rock. We'll come to that story in a few months. Peter was a fisherman by trade before following Jesus. But after he followed Jesus, he was zealous and energetic, always willing to do his best, it seemed, yet he often said things he shouldn't have said. And in the end, Peter would be one of the most important leaders in the early church. He would write two books of the New Testament and helped with a third, probably the Gospel of Matthew is Peter's account. Church tradition tells us that he would eventually live in the city of Rome and lead the church there. And that he would also die there at the hands of the emperor Nero, hanging upside down on a cross. The next listed here is Andrew, his brother. Andrew was the one who brought Peter to meet Jesus originally. And we can read about that in John chapter 1. Andrew was originally a follower of John the Baptist, which we can learn there. Not much else is known about him, though. Church tradition has Andrew serving and leading churches in Greece, which is where he was eventually martyred by crucifixion. James, the son of Zebedee, was also a fisherman and by all accounts had a fiery personality. And we know that because Jesus called him and his brother the sons of thunder. You have to have a personality to get that nickname. He was also the first apostle to be martyred, which we can read about in Acts 12 after Herod had him killed 
with the sword, probably because of his fiery personality. And just to be clear, this is not the James who wrote the book of James. That would be James, the brother of Jesus and the first bishop of Jerusalem. You can read about him in Acts 15. He is not listed here. James, the son of Zebedee, was the first apostle to be brought to heaven. But his brother John was the last. John was the younger brother of James and maybe the youngest apostle. He was also a fisherman, but came to be known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John wrote five books in our New Testament, including one of the Gospels, and he served in and around the city of Ephesus, but was exiled eventually to the island of Patmos. And according to church tradition, he was the only one of the twelve to not die a martyr's death, living well into his 90s. Peter, James, and John constitute the inner circle of the twelve. They are brought with Jesus almost everywhere he goes. Peter and John are the ones that have a foot race to the empty tomb, you remember. The rest of the apostles listed here we know very little about from Scripture, except maybe Matthew, who authored this book and who we focused on a few weeks ago. Philip we meet in the Gospel of John. He was one of the earliest of Jesus' disciples, and he brought his best friend to meet Jesus, Nathaniel. We don't know anything else about Philip, though. Nathaniel's other name was Bartholomew. Again, we don't know much about Bartholomew other than Jesus knew he was reading under a fig tree when Jesus saw him for the first time, and that he was from the city of Cana, where Jesus did his first miracle. And he was one of the seven disciples who had breakfast with Jesus in John 21. Church tradition has old Barty heading to northern Europe, where he was flayed to death, although that's probably not true. Another more likely tradition has him heading east toward India, where he would be martyred. But church tradition and some good archaeological and church evidence suggest that it was the next apostle who made it all the way to India. Thomas. Thomas is famous for his doubt. An unfortunate thing to be remembered for. It probably stemmed, his doubt probably stemmed from a deep grief at the death of Christ, his beloved Savior. It was Thomas, after all, who was the first apostle to call Jesus God after feeling the holes in his hands and in his side. Matthew, we met not too long ago. He was a tax collector who was called out of the tax booth by Jesus. He threw Jesus a party and joined him in his mission, leaving his sinful profession behind. And of course, being the detail-oriented person Matthew was, he would write this gospel that we are reading from. And it's called by many in church history the greatest book ever written, the Gospel of Matthew. And church tradition has Matthew serving the church in Antioch, where Paul came to know the Lord, and where he died as a martyr. James, the son of Alphaeus, is also known as, known as James the Lesser, or James the Younger, to distinguish him from James, the son of Zebedee. We don't have any information from the scriptures about this James, except that maybe his mother stood at the foot of Jesus' cross. Church tradition has many different legendary accounts of what happened to this guy, James the Less, but nothing is known for certain. He was an apostle who died in obscurity. 
And the same can be said for Thaddeus, sometimes called Labius, or Judas, the son of James, as Luke calls him. He speaks one time in the Gospel of John. He asks Jesus why Jesus won't openly manifest himself to the whole world. It's a very good question that brings Jesus on a long theological diatribe about himself. Once again, we don't know much about him. He may be the same man who wrote the book of Jude, but that's heavily disputed. Simon the Zealot is next, and we don't know anything about his life either, other than his nickname here, the Zealot, and that's what it is. It's a nickname. This was a term that referred to a, um, an emerging political movement at the time that started in the land of Israel. The Zealots were diametrically opposed to the Roman Empire and, and occupation of Israel and sought to establish a reformed monarchy in Israel. So Simon probably belonged to that group. He may have been a member of that early community, but Jesus calls him out of that and into discipleship. It's amazing that Jesus could have both a former tax collector who were looked at as Roman sympathizers and a zealot who hated tax collectors, both named as his apostles. The kingdom of heaven unites people of all political persuasions under the kingship of Christ. Amen? Finally, Judas Iscariot is listed. And Matthew spoils the ending. He says that Judas is the one who betrayed Jesus. Judas is always listed last in every gospel. It's a place of dishonor. Judas sold his Lord out for 30 pieces of silver. But we need to keep in mind that until Judas leaves the upper room that fateful night, he is everywhere the disciples are, doing everything the disciples do. So Jesus right here gives him authority to heal and to cast out demons, which should teach us something about gifts and mighty works, right? Gifts of the Spirit, even amazing, miraculous ones, do not prove the salvation of that person. The Spirit can do whatever He wants because He is God, and He can do it through whomever He wants to accomplish His purposes, even Judas Iscariot. So if we're going to look for evidence of a renewed life in Jesus Christ, we need to look at the spiritual fruit, not at the spiritual gifts. Judas was given authority to heal, but he didn't bear fruit in keeping with faith. He didn't actually love Jesus. And so Judas rounds out the list of apostles. We know them now, and we'll, we'll see them pretty often, but we should note a few things from the list. First, Peter is given a place of prominence here and throughout Matthew's gospel. He becomes the leader of these 12 men. And that will become increasingly important as we build up to chapter 16. So the first thing to notice is Peter's place of prominence. Second, many of these men died in complete obscurity in service to their Lord. I mentioned over and over about church tradition. Even if the evidence is early, we don't know for certain what happened to these guys, even Peter. And that's okay. We don't need to know. We know about them 
What we need to know about them, we know from Scripture. And the ultimate point of their lives is that they served their Lord and proclaimed his good news to the world. And we can do likewise. We can't be apostles, but we can spread the good news of the kingdom to a lost world, and we don't need to worry about our recognition or our legacy. Amen? If James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, two of the twelve apostles, don't need their biographies remembered in history in order to have powerfully served the Lord, to have their names written on the foundation of the new Jerusalem, then neither do we. Amen? If you're interested in this kind of thing, to see what happened to these guys, or to see what church tradition has to say about some of the other characters of the New Testament, I'd recommend a book to you. It's very readable and approachable. It's not very long and the chapters are digestible. It's called After Acts, After Acts by Brian Litvin. It's a small book and I hope it's still in print, but if you're interested in this kind of church history, I recommend that to you, After Acts by Brian Litvin. The third thing I want to mention is something that I think is really important as we reflect upon this list. Now, now, just to say, it's not my intention here to criticize wrongly or to offend, so please understand that this comes from a place of love and compassion. But our text today identifies 12 men who hold the office of apostle. All apostles are disciples of Jesus, but not all disciples of Jesus are apostles. There are many disciples of Jesus at this point in history by Matthew chapter 10. But he specifically calls out 12 men to hold this special office of apostle. The New Testament defines an apostle as anyone who has witnessed Jesus in his resurrected state for a small period of time and who has been called by him specifically to that office. These 12 certainly qualify. And the New Testament identifies a couple of others. Matthias, who succeeded Judas. Paul, whom Jesus appeared to in his resurrected state and who was appointed by Christ. And James, the brother of Jesus, the bishop of Jerusalem. These are clearly counted among the apostles in the New Testament. Barnabas, you'll remember, Barnabas is the ministry partner of Paul. And maybe Silas and Timothy would also qualify. Maybe. That's disputed. Beyond that... The office of apostle is not occupied or claimed by anyone else in church history. For the last 2,000 years, no one has claimed to be an apostle that is inside of confessional Orthodox Christendom. The apostles, early disciples like Polycarp, John's disciple, he doesn't claim to be an apostle. The church fathers like St. Augustine don't claim that title. The reformers certainly don't claim that title. And it's not until very recently, within the last few decades, that people, some, have claimed that title for themselves. And I'm not saying that some who do claim that office of apostle today aren't Christians. But I would warn you to be careful of such a claim. I would warn you against the teaching of such people. The actions of the, apostle that, of the apostles that defined their office cannot be accomplished by anybody living today. The office of apostle is not defined by spiritual gifts. It's defined by appointment. So nobody 
can establish today the strength of the early church. Nobody today can make declarations binding on every church in existence. Nobody today can write scripture. And nobody today can meet the qualifications that we find for the office in the New Testament. So once again, we need to be careful with whom we listen to and what they call themselves. The New Testament outlines several church offices that are still functioning today, like elders and deacons. But Jesus calls out a small group of men to do a particular thing for a particular time to be apostles. And so Matthew will often call these guys the 12. That's what we'll see going forward. He'll often refer to them as the 12. But when we see Jesus' disciples from here on, Matthew is no longer talking about an unknown amount of people gathered around Jesus. He's talking about the 12. And it's to these 12 men that Jesus gives second a mission. Now it's their turn to go out into the world to do the things that Jesus has been doing. Verse 5 says, These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, And enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he sends them out. He tells them to go and gives them clearly defined borders. Later, the Gentiles and the Samaritans will be be brought into the church. We can read Acts chapter 7 through 10 all about that. But just as Paul would do later in his missionary journeys, the message of the kingdom is brought to the Jews first. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and they need to hear about it first. But Galilee, where Jesus is telling them these things, is surrounded by Gentile land and Samaria to the south. So their mission would be restricted to that one area. They're not to go to any Gentile land, which is north, east, and west, and they're not to go to Samaria, which is directly south. So they can't make it to the rest of Israel and Judah. They stay in Galilee. And as we saw last week, Jesus went to all the towns and villages in that area around Galilee. And it would have taken over four months to do that. But now Jesus is sending out these men to do the same thing. And Mark tells us that Jesus sends them out two by two. And I think Matthew hints at that as well. He lists the apostles in couplets and groups of two. These are probably their ministry partners. They don't work alone. And crucially, Jesus doesn't send them out alone, which should teach us something about missions work. When God calls us to do something, we have to rely on other people. We need one another. If the apostles who learned straight from Jesus needed each other to do their work, so do we. Jesus calls Israel here the lost sheep. He's helping them understand how they should view their ministry from a place of compassion. This is coming right on the heels of last week where Jesus is moved by compassion for the lost sheep of Israel. They're supposed to be like shepherds bringing the sheep back into the fold. That should be their demeanor as they go. That's how they should feel like Jesus. They should feel compassionate like Jesus for the lost And when we are sent out by the Lord to do our work, that should be how we feel too. Not going out to dominate or to say who's wrong, but to bring in the fold, to bring in the lost sheep. 
Verse 7 tells us the primary thing that they're supposed to be doing. The primary thing. Jesus says, and go and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the same exact message that both John the Baptist and Jesus have been preaching. This is the work of the harvest, to proclaim the kingdom of heaven. The proclamation is all about Jesus's kingdom, specifically that it is at hand, it is near. In fact, the kingdom of heaven is breaking forth into the world. Jesus had demonstrated his authority over all things, and now he has multiplied his messengers to spread the news. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, and people are welcomed and called into it. The 12 disciples constitute the new leadership of that kingdom under their head, Jesus Christ, and now they are sent out to the lost sheep of Israel to bring them the good news. The Messiah has arrived. The time is now. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is still the message that we have today. The kingdom of heaven has been established by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And all of the lost sheep of the world are eagerly called to enter it. The kingdom of heaven has its earthly representative in the church right now. And all are called to participate. And there will come a time when Christ establishes his heavenly kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And so the message is the primary thing. They are given good news to spread. And the good news is to be accompanied by the works of the kingdom. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse lepers. Cast out demons. It's a very specific list. So why these four things? For two reasons, these four concern the restoration of the human body. The message of the kingdom of heaven is about the whole person. The great works that the disciples perform in this mission in healing human bodies points forth to the greater work of salvation that Jesus accomplishes on the cross and in his resurrection, the salvation of souls. These healings would be the promised down payment of what is to come. Second, they are what Jesus did in chapters 8 and 9. Now the disciples will do almost exactly what Jesus did in these few chapters. Matthew doesn't tell what miracles the disciples actually perform. We don't get a list of all the fun things that they got to encounter in their missionary journey. Mark tells us, though, that they did indeed heal many and cast out demons. The Gospels don't record any instance where an apostle raises the dead, although Paul will do that in the book of Acts. The point is that Jesus actively calls these 12 men to do the things he has done. These are the signs of the kingdom of heaven, which are accompanied by the words of the kingdom of heaven. The works are subservient to the words, and that's always the case, always. We can't just help people and expect them to believe the gospel. The gospel needs to be shared in word. So Jesus encourages them here not to hold back. You received without paying, give without pay. This is not a money-making venture. Be generous with your time. Be generous with your healing. Be generous with the proclamation. 
The point isn't to become wealthy through this new Christ-given authority. It's to bring people into the kingdom so they aren't supposed to receive payment, but they're encouraged to receive hospitality, as we'll see. Verses 9 and 10 set limits on what they can bring. They aren't supposed to bring any money with them, no gold or silver or copper to pay for things. They aren't supposed to bring a bag or more than one tunic, sandals and staffs. The most basic traveling supplies are supposed to be left at home. Jesus sets these limits so that they completely rely upon the Lord for their provision. In one way, it's a test. Do they believe that the Lord will provide for them while they do his work? The question still stands for us today. Do we believe that we will be provided for when we do the work? Jesus says, for the laborer deserves his food, implying that the disciples will need to receive from the generosity of others. All of the things that they will need for the journey, from sandals to bread, will be given them along the way. And these verses help us recenter on thought, our thoughts on what ministry should look like. Ministry is not a money-making venture. This is not an avenue to get rich. At least that shouldn't be the minister's attitude. Rather, ministers of the gospel need to consider whatever money they make, not as payment, but as provision. And that's a good way for all of us to look at our money. God has provided for us to do exactly what he has called us to do. The apostles are to go out into the surrounding countryside with very little. A single tunic and the message of the kingdom of heaven. They needed faith to believe that they would be provided for. And in every village they entered, they were supposed to find a worthy person to stay with. And verse 11 tells us that they're supposed to stay in that house until they depart from that town. Verses 12 and 13 are noteworthy. They say, as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. So what would make a house worthy? Jesus doesn't define it for us, but I think that's easy to deduce from the context. First, a worthy house would accept the good news of the kingdom of heaven. Second, they would help the apostle in their mission by providing what they need in the immediate moment they meet them. And third, they would treat the apostle with grace and hospitality during their short stay in, in their town. If an apostle was welcomed into somebody's home, they were supposed to greet them with the traditional greeting, something like, peace be with you, or peace be with your household. And if the household stopped being worthy, meaning they come to reject the teaching of the kingdom of heaven, or they fail to provide proper hospitality, the apostle was to let their peace return to them, which is an obscure statement in our ears. Basically, it means that they're supposed to let the blessing of Christ, the peace of Christ, return to them, which sounds horrible. It's a statement of judgment. How horrible would it be for the peace of Christ that was once upon you to leave you? We have to remember that hospitality was a really big deal in that culture. We talked about it a little bit in Matthew chapter 9 when, Matthew go, when, when Jesus goes to Matthew's house. 
An apostle would be honoring their guest by staying with them. And undoubtedly, there would be several in any given town that would want, to, want the apostle to come to their house. Remember, Jesus has spent a lot of time going to every village and every town in the surrounding area. People know who Jesus is at this point. And he has many disciples, probably one from every town. He's gathering a crowd everywhere he goes. So people would want the apostles to stay with him. So Jesus' charge to his, his apostles to, to only stay in one house sets a limit on how long they can stay in one place. Right? You can't go from house to house to house to house in one town. You can only stay in one place and then leave. But it also means if a house failed to live up to Jesus' standard of worthiness, they were to leave the whole town. And verse 14 tells us what they should do in that case. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. The town that rejects the message of the kingdom of heaven would be left alone. They were to shake off the dust from their feet, which even to our ears doesn't sound like a blessing. It's a statement of judgment and of disassociation. Pious religious Jews, after business abroad at this time, would shake the unclean and unrighteous dust off their feet right before they re-entered the promised land. It was a common practice. They didn't want to make their homeland unclean with foreign dust. So the implication here is shocking and profound as Jesus applies it to Jewish towns and villages. The apostles are supposed to do the exact same thing to the town who rejects the message of the kingdom. They would be calling that town unclean and unrighteous because of their rejection of Jesus. And Jesus tells us in verse 15, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now let's try to wrap our heads around that statement. Sodom and Gomorrah were literally wiped off the map by God himself after he found them to be so wicked beyond restoration in Genesis 19, sending fire out of the sky. Jesus says the members of those towns who were obliterated by God's fire will have an easier time at the judgment than any town or village who rejects Jesus. This is serious business. Jesus has entrusted his apostles with that message. The message of hope. And this warning still stands. Rejection of the gospel is not a morally neutral choice. Rejection of the gospel, the message of the kingdom of heaven, welcomes judgment on your life on a scale we cannot imagine. The greatest judgment recorded in scripture will pale in comparison to what you will be subject to at the judgment, the final judgment. It's a scary thought. And yes, this is still the case today. The big takeaway today is this. This is the big takeaway. Jesus delegated his authority to the apostles, first in a small way here, and later in a greater and fuller way at the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. But their message still carries the same weight. 
The apostles may have died, but they live in heaven now, and their teaching still bears the stamp of Jesus' approval. Look ahead a couple weeks with me to Matthew 10.40. Matthew 10.40 says, talking to the apostles, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Receiving the apostles' teaching is receiving Jesus. And receiving Jesus is receiving the Father. So this is a call to fully submit to the word of God today. Whoever receives you receives me, Jesus says. This is something we constantly have to do as Christians, submit to the word of God because our flesh revolts against the scriptures. It doesn't want to hear the truth. It doesn't want to be shown time and time again how unrighteous we are. And so over and over every day we submit ourselves to the word of God. We need to realize that these are given by Christ himself through these men. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And anyone who receives this message is found worthy of the peace of Christ. So would you heed that call? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe. Our text today stands as a warning to those who reject Jesus. Just as God's grace is extended extended to all those who repent and believe the gospel, judgment is laid upon those who reject the gospel. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can go before the Father except through him. Like I said, rejection of the gospel is not a morally neutral choice. It welcomes judgment, but that does not need to be true for you today. We are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So place your faith in him, in the king, and you too will enter his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, today we are so grateful for your word that teaches us all about your kingdom. Lord, we look forward to the day where you come and make all things new. We pray that our greatest desire would be to see you reigning on your throne with our own eyes. Lord, we get caught up in life. We get caught up in so many things. We get caught up especially in our own hearts and in our own desires. And Lord, we recognize that we constantly need to return to your word. That we constantly need to be reminded of your goodness and your sovereignty. And so, Lord, we entrust ourselves to you and we thank you for your love toward us. That you have had mercy on us, your lost sheep. and That you have brought us into the fold and that now you are our good shepherd. Lord, we wonder and celebrate at that fact. We are unworthy. But Lord, you have found us and you have loved us and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.